Welcome to the AWP podcast series. This event was recorded at the 2013 AWP conference in Boston. The recording features Jory Graham, Terence Hayes, and Kwame Dawes. You will now hear Alison Granusi provide introductions. Good evening, everyone. Thank you for coming to our poetry event, Language at the Breaking Point, a conversation and reading with Terence Hayes and Jory Graham. My name is Alison Granusi, and I am the founder of Blue Flower Arts, which is a literary speakers agency representing poets, authors, and filmmakers for their readings and appearances. And uh, this evening, we are most delighted to host Terence Hayes and Jory Graham. Uh, it is my great pleasure to introduce Kwame Dawes, the moderator for this evening's conversation, and he will then in turn introduce Terence and Jory. Ghanaian-born Jamaican poet, Kwame Dawes is the award-winning author of 16 books of poetry, most recently Wheels, published in 2011 and numerous books of fiction, nonfiction, criticism, and drama. Elizabeth Alexander writes, Kwame Dawes is one of the most important writers of his generation who has built a mighty and lasting body of work. This year, Duppy Conqueror, new and selected poems will be published by Copper Canyon Press. Dawes is currently the editor of Prairie Schooner at the University of Nebraska, where he is a Chancellor's Professor of English. He is also the co-founder and programming director of the Calabash International Literary Festival, which takes place in Jamaica in May of alternating years. Please join me in welcoming Kwame Dawes and exploration this evening of the excavation of language in the shaping of imagination. Good evening. How are you doing? You doing okay? All right, lively up yourself now, folks. This is... This is not a funeral, this is a poetry reading. Um, so, so what we're doing tonight, we're going to hear two amazing poets, and then we're going to, um, if time allows, and you know, this is what one must say, um, we're going to have a conversation of, of, of sorts. Uh, what I thought I'd do is introduce the poets um, before they read, um, and then uh, they'll read, and then we'll, we'll join each other on stage and have a conversation. The introduction that I'm going to give of each poet uh, is in many ways a kind of joint introduction, but you'll see the lines separating at some point as well, uh, which is to say that it's not necessarily as well written as I hoped it would be. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Okay, so I'll begin with Jory Graham, who will read second, and then, of course, Terence Hayes will read first, so that when I finish reading Terence, then I can say, ladies and gentlemen, there's Terence Hayes, so I could do it that way. So that, that way it works. Off. So I'll, I'll start with Jory Graham. Uh, Jory Graham must contend with the almost tyrannical demand made of the modernists to interrogate and question the very artifice of poetry. 
the wonderful presence of a poem appearing as a whole and finished thing. The poet is an, is an, the poet, the title poet is an, an embarrassing label, but necessary one for cataloging the work. If in her earlier work she happily indulges the idea of the author's masking, by the time we encounter her later work, we see a confident, bold interruption of the confines of artifice by drawing attention to the eye as something of an interloper in the poem. For poets who are willing to remove the armor that protects us, Jory Graham teaches us what bravery it constitutes to examine the idea of the poet. Her elliptical leaps, her tumbling mutations of ideas from image and thought into new unexpected images and thoughts, with much of the virtuosic tightrope dance of somebody like Shakespeare, with far, but she does it with far less adherence to the tyrannies of the sentence to create what can only be described as a splendidly alive engagement with language and its inadequacies. And these are her gifts to us. Look at what happens in this fragment of a poem, um, Treadmill. I enter the poem here on line 28 at 6.44 p.m. I had been trying to stay outside, but the city itself took time off from dying to whisper into my ear, we need you. The complaint which we will nail once again to the door must be signed by everyone. Early last year, I happened to be in London when the winner of the Forward Poetry Prize was announced. I was at the event, and after the spare ceremony, the British do it very spare, um, of the announcement, the British publisher of plays read a poem by the winner, Jory Graham. The passage was a tender, disarmingly welcoming walk into something akin to narrative. It was simply beautiful, and these lines traveled with me on my tube journey to my hotel. It was a kind of haunting grace. Graham is making what has already been a great contribution to American poetry into what one might call monumental, a work of poetic authority and importance. She writes with an urgent sense of now, as if Guantanamo Bay and Midsummer's reliable magic have everything in common, as if the violent deaths of dogs and the inscrutable silence of God are part of the same song, as if the making of poems can be the only thing in the world in our present moment. We'll wrestle with her work as we have wrestled with Rilke. We will be bewildered and alarmed, and yet we will try to stay with her just long enough for the relief of the eye, the relief of the poet reminding us that we can breathe, be confused, and yet still be filled with pure illumination. Terence Hayes. I met Terence Hayes many years ago and became struck by the things that animated him. Basketball, jazz, music, art, and poetry. The basketball, you can expect. Uh, he had to have an excuse for his height. But it was his wonderfully dynamic and energetic engagement with poetry, his encyclopedic knowledge, and his voracious hunger to know more poetry, more poets, more writers who have fed poets completely. And all of this fascinated me and filled me with great admiration. Hayes has won his share of awards, but his work remains consistently restless, dynamic, stretching the limits of form, dancing to multiple musics, and yet paying such tender and human homage to the writers he admires and hates and those he wants to emulate and those he wants to eliminate. He is a living, breathing, driving force that grows out of a pure belief in the poetic art. Here's what I would say. Hayes would, fasc would fascinate and please a 24-year-old Langston Hughes because he would be exactly the poet, not afraid of being black and not afraid of writing what it means to be American with open eyes, critical insight, and hunger for truth. 
His titles are growing in importance, a study in what we call formal practice, but a study in a kind of human vulnerability that has turned the, 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 the native word, the word of the poet, and a word like stepfather into a late motif of anxiety, loss, and grace. Muscular music, hip logic, wind in the box, lighthead. I lived in South Carolina for almost 20 years. It's a place he is from and a place that defines him. And yet it is a place, not a, a place out of which he has leaped with a combination of talent, labor, and drive. It is easy to be sucked into his wit and music. It is just as easy to be left breathless in the face of the raw honesty of his truth. Terence Hayes has invented forms that others are imitating. Then he turns around and suggests we find new shapes. We will hear more and more from him. He will teach us who we are as Americans and as human beings. So, ladies and gentlemen, Terence Hayes and Jury Graham. Thank you. So, thanks, Kwame. Glad y'all out. Anytime I see people out on a Friday night, I, I say, would I do this if I was in the audience? Um, so, Luis Rodriguez, man, that's the guy who published my first book. And this wouldn't even happen anymore. You know, I had never met him. I just met him five minutes ago. When did I publish that book, you know? a while ago, and so think about that, like a dude publishes your book and he's never met you, that never happens. So it's an honor to meet you, I'm so happy you're in the audience, and my wife's in the audience, you know, so <clears throat> if you know me, you know, I don't have to say anything else about, about her. You know, that's all I talk about, so. All right, so that's it. I'm just gonna read some poems and then we'll talk. Uh, I try not to talk too much between the poems uh, so I can use the time for the poems, all right. So, uh, New York poem. In New York, from a rooftop in Chinatown, one can see the sci-fi bridges and aisles of buildings where there are more miles of shortcuts and alternative takes than there are Miles Davis alternative takes. There is a white girl who looks hijacked with feeling in her glittering jacket and her boots that look made of dinosaur skin. And R is saying to her, I love you, I love you, again and again. On a Chinatown rooftop in New York, anything can happen. Someone says, abattoir is such a pretty word for slaughterhouse. Someone says, mermaids are just fish ladies. I am so fucking vain that I cannot believe anyone is threatened by me. In New York, not everyone is forgiven. Dear New York, dear girl with a barcode tattooed on the side of your face, and everyone writing poems about and inside and outside the subways, dear people underground in New York, on the sci-fi bridges and aisles of New York, on the rooftops of Chinatown, where Miles Davis is pumping in and someone is telling me about contronyms, how cleave and cleave are the same word looking in opposite directions. I now know bolt is to lock and bolt is to run away. That's how I think of New York. 
Someone jonesing for Grace Jones at the party and someone jonesing for Grace. So I rarely read that outside of New York because I figure you know, everybody's hating on New York. So I like it. I'm working on other poems about other places. I just, they're just not as good. So <clears throat> I do like New York. All right, black Confederate ghost story. Why aren't there more black ghost stories? Black Confederate ghost story for bugs. Attention, African-American apparitions hung, burned, or drowned before anyone alive was born. Please make a mortifying midnight appearance before the handyman standing on my porch this morning with a beard as wild as Walt Whitman's. Except he is the anti-Whitman, this white man with Confederate pins littering his denim cap and jacket. And by mortify, dear ghost, I mean scare the shit out of him. I wish I were as tolerant as Walt Whitman, waltzing across a battlefield like a song covering a cry of distress, but I am, I want to be a storm covering a Confederate parade. The handyman's insistence that there were brigades of black Confederates as, as oxymoronic as terms like civil war, free slave, it is the opposite of history. Goodbye plantations doused in Sherman's fire and homely, lonesome women weeping over blue and gray bodies. Goodbye, colored ghosts. You could have headed north if there was a south to flee. In Louisiana, north begins with Mississippi. East is Alabama, west is Texas. And here is this fool telling me there were blacks who fought to preserve slavery. Goodbye, slavery. Hello, black accomplices and accomplished blacks. Hello, Robert E. Lee bobblehead doll on the handyman's dashboard whistling Dixie across our post-racial country. Last night, I watched several hours of television and saw no blacks. NASDAQ, NASCAR, NADA, black. I wish, <laughs> I wish there were more ghost stories about lynched Negroes haunting the mobs that lynched them. Do I believe no one among us was alive between 1861 and 1865? I do and I don't. We all have somewhere to go and we are probably already there. I know only one ghost story featuring a brother in Alabama dragged to the center of town in a storm for some crime he didn't commit. He was hung as lightning struck a window on the courthouse he's been haunting ever since. Attention apparitions. This is a solicitation very much like a prayer. Your presence is requested tonight when this man is polishing his Civil War relics and singing good old rebel soldier to himself. Hello, sliding chairs. Hello, vicious whispering shadows. I'm a reasonable man, but I want to be as inexplicable as something hanging a dozen feet in the air. All right, so. <clears throat> I, don't, I can't, I, well, I, I have to set this one up, but as far as a poem goes, uh, I would say don't ask me any questions. Uh, I'll just say that there's a line in it. I was listening to this guy on the radio when uh, Trayvon Martin was shot, and the guy was sort of had a response to the fact that all, all this sort of activity was going on around him. And so he said, you know, whenever there's uh, something controversial, whenever something happens, calamity pimps come out of the woodwork and start to paddle their own canoes, which I was like, wow, what a sentence. You know, both the most fucked up thing I've ever heard and yet the most beautiful thing, you know. So I was like, I'm gonna put that in a poem. <clears throat> and in the poem, I'm gonna make sure I threaten them. But uh, anyway, 
So that's in here. That's all you need to know, I guess. I can say this, that it's just a reference that nobody ever gets. So I always have to make sure I say it, like the difference between wigger and whack. It's a slight difference. All right, <clears throat> wig-frastic. Sometimes I want a built-in scalp that looks and feels like skin a form of camouflage protection against sunburn and frostbite, horsehair that covers the nightmares and makes me feel civilized. Somebody slap a powdered wig on me so I can hammer a couple sentences like Louis XIV, small and bald as a boiled egg, making himself taller by means of a towering hairpiece resembling a Corinthian column, or maybe a skyscraping kid with no play wig, worn by someone playing niggas with attitudes at a penthouse party with no black people invited. We up in the club humming, mm-mm, hey mama, in our numb skull caps, underscore the brain's captivity. Somebody slap me. Norman Mailer's essay, The White Negro, Superficial Reflections on the Hipster, never actually uses the word wigger. I'd rather say whack. It may be fruitful to consider me a philosophical psychopath. We clubbing in our wigs of please and pathological coulda, woulda, shouldas, oblong with longing. The ladies wear wigs of no-nos and knots, knots of knots. Do not, cannot, ought not step to me. Wigs dipped in dye the color of cosmopolitans, citrus, wheat, beer, swirling on their scalps, off their scalps, side of scalps, their center parts and irrigated plaits. Flirty bangs dangle below a bow clip of sparkle. A lady places her bow about face to place her face in place, which is a placebo of place. Her face is a placebo. Let's wear ready-made wigs, custom-made wigs, hand-tied wigs, and machine-made wigs. No Negro can saunter down a street with any real certainty violence will not visit him, wrote Mailer. Bullets shout through the darkness. Dumb people are dangerous. Calamity pimps come out of the woodwork and start to paddle their own canoes. This was a white dude's response to the death of Martin. Later, let's beat that apathy wig right off him. You wear the shark head wig and I'll wear the wig of tide water rising to the ceiling. You wear the buckaroo wig, and I'll wear a wig of tumbleweed. When anyone says, you look beautiful, reply, I feel beautiful, like the beautiful shoulder-length locks shorn by a cancer-stuffed bride in need of money. Let's get higher than God tonight, like the military wives of imperial Rome smiling in the blonde and red-haired wigs cut from the scalps of enemy, enemy captives. Somebody slap me. We awash in liquor, watching the coils curl, curls coil, coils coil, curls curl on the girls. Non-slip polyurethane patches, superfine lace, Isis wigs, Cleopatra wigs, big booty Judy wigs, under the soft radar streaked music of Climax, singing, the men all pause when I walk into the room. Y'all remember that? The men all pause. The men all pause, animals. The men all fangles. The men all woof, woofs, and a little bit lost, lust, lustrous, trustless, restless as the rest of us. In my life, the wigs eat me. The wish to live a while on the mind of another human, it is not inhuman. The wish to slide for a while inside another human, it is not inhuman. If you like 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 I like like, you should wear a hairpiece. It is peace of mind, it is artistic, it is a lightweight likeness, comfortable wash and wear, virtually looking and feeling with virtually no side effects. Let me hear you say this wig is terrific, a colored despair wig for your colored despair. 
an economic despair wig, a sexual despair wig, a wig for expressive despair, political despair, a movable halo. New and improved, your wig can be set upon the older wig, just as the older wig when it was, was set, when it was newer, upon the wig beneath it. Your wig's terrific. Where is your wig? Where are your wig at? <clears throat> so. <clears throat> So, you know, uh, those kinds of puns get me going. So <clears throat> I put those up front so then I could calm down. Uh, so this poem, you always got to have something new to kind of keep you uncertain. So this poem is the last part of a very long poem called, uh, you know, Instructions for a Seance or something like that. So this last section is called Collapsed Lyrics of a Seance. And I put it with the wig poem just because I would prefer no questions about this one as well. Uh, Kwame, don't ask me nothing about it. I'll be like, I didn't read that. Jory read that poem. All right, so uh, collapsed lyrics of a seance. Feeble heart beware, the dead are lonely. A faint witchcraft against death, self-destruction performed by stars. I am too tough to die. We are lonely. Our symptoms include metaphysical hunger. The mouth on your navel is your own. A two-dimensional weeping. A series of unacknowledged sacrifices. A mirror in the towering dusk, groaning and brushing. One must conjure change. I have changed. Face a provincial room, a winter. Let's say you've gone back in time. Plague, pneumonia, paranoia, intellectual starvation, spiritual exhaustion, pratfalls, missteps. It should be 12 o'clock. Five soldiers should pass at the speed of light. Negative and positive transgressions, a means of disappearance. There is such a thing as too much symbolism, distraction cooing in the dark paneled room, an uncoupled breast without windows and the mechanical soul. A certain nobility is implicit. I have two hands and they are not as similar as they seem. The glow suggests a burning, a beautiful trembling blood what do I love and why should I? Who do I know and who will care to be unnecessary? Invite the ghost into your body, tired people. A wonderful futuristic mood. Be born like it was now, like before it was now, even before that. I remember now like it was now the chatter of smoke and leaves and namesake and mortality and brush strokes beneath a name, the name as the sun rises, even with life, meaning world. I do not know what will happen. Dead, I may wish to be dead again. All right, so sometimes I think I'll just give it a the previous, you know, eight pages and keep that. But yeah, if you write that much, you gotta leave it, even if it's mediocre. So 
<laughs> I'll put it in the book, but I only read that part. All right. Uh, the deer. Uh, muscadines, I should say, is a strange, ugly berry that grows in the south. You can make muscadine wine if you know what it is. Pataskala is a town in Ohio, and any poet that has ever driven or seen the word Pataskala has probably written a poem in which Pataskala appears. So, the deer. I just like saying it, that's why I kept saying Pataskala. <clears throat> the deer. Outside Pataskala, I saw the deer with a soft white belly, the deer with two eyes as blind as holes. I saw it leap from a bush beside the highway as if a moment before it leapt, it had been a bush beside the highway. And I saw how if I wished it, I could be the deer, a creature bony as a branch in spring. And when I closed my eyes, I found the scent of muscadine, the berry my mother plucked Sundays from the roadside where fumes toughened its speckled skin and seeds slept suspended in a mucus thick as sleep of an embryo. It is the ugliest berry along the road, but chewed it reminded me of speed. And I saw when I was the deer that I didn't have to be a deer. I could become a machine with the mother inside it moving at a speed that leaves a stain on the breeze and on the muscadine's flesh, which is almost meat, the sweet pulp a muscadine leaves when it's crushed in the teeth of a deer or a mother for that matter, or her child waiting with something like shame to be fed a berry uglier than shame, though it is not like this for the deer. It is not shame because the deer is not human. It is only almost human when it looks on the road and leaps covering at least 30 feet in a blink. The deer I cannot be, the dumb deer, dumb and foolish enough to ignore anything that runs but is not alive. A trafficking machine filled with a distracted mind and body, deadly and durable enough to deconstruct the deer when it leaps, I'm telling you, like someone being chased. I remember a friend told me how, when he was eight or nine, a half-naked woman ran to the car window, crying her man was after her with a knife. But his mother locked the doors and sped away. Someone tell him his mother was not a coward. That's what he thinks. Tell him it was because he and his little brother were in the car, she would not let the troubled world inside. It was no one's fault. The mind separated from the body. I could almost see the holes of her eyes, the white fuzz on her tongue, the raised buds soft as a bed of pink seeds the whole of a mouth stretched wide enough to hold a whole baby inside. I could almost see its eyes at the back of her throat. I could definitely hear its cries. Um, so this next one, the, uh, <clears throat> this next one is, uh, they talked briefly last night about uh, Lowell who like to steal stuff. 
So I was reading him talking about how he stole the idea for uh, Skunk Hour from Elizabeth Bishop, which everybody knows. But my favorite line in that poem, which would be like a great T-shirt, is like, I myself am hell. So when, everybody, when people would say, do you like Lowell, I would say, I myself am hell. <laughs> and then I discovered that that wasn't his line either. Man, that's Milton. <laughs> Milton from Paradise Lost, almost exactly the same. Anyway, so I feel like I can steal from him. Um, but it's just a structure. You know, he was like, when he saw the armadillo, he was like, oh, I'll just wander all over the place and wind up with an animal. So I'm doing that too. It's, it's an ant. I guess I should say too, this is new too, so I, I sort of, you know, I talk too much around the new poems as I figure out, you know, how to set them up. Um, in the South, we say aunt, but I used to think it was only white people that said aunt, but I'm not sure now, because when I ask white people, do you say aunt or aunt? They say aunt, don't you say aunt? So I feel like they're just saying, you know, they, they think, I think they're racist if they say aunt instead of aunt. I don't know. <laughs> so I say aunt, but it's relevant to the poem. I'm going to say aunt, but you can hear aunt. I won't, I won't think you're racist. <clears throat> the carpenter aunt. It was when or because she became two kinds of mad both a nail biting into a plank and a screw cranking into a wood beam, the aunt, I shouldn't say her name, went at the fullest hour of the night, the moon there like an unflowered bulb in a darkness like mud or covered in darkness as a bulb or a skull is covered in mud, the small brown aunt who, before she went mad, taught herself to carpenter and unhinged in her madness, the walls she claimed were bugged with a tiny red-eyed device planted by the state or Satan's agents, ghosts of atheists, her foes or worse. The walls were full of the bugs she believed crawled from her former son-in-law's crooked mouth. The aunt, who knows as all creatures know, you have to be rooted in something tangible as wood if you wish to dream in peace. Took her hammer with its claw like a mandible to her own handmade housing, humming, I don't know why God keeps blessing me. Softly, madly, and I understood I was with her when the pallbearers carried a box made of mahogany from her church to a hearse to a hole in the earth. It made me think of the carpenter ant who carries within its blood an evolved self-destructive property and on its face mandibles twice the size of its body and can carry on its back, as I have seen on TV, a rotted bird or branch, great distances to wherever the queen is buried, kingdom, animalia, phylum, arthropoda, tribe, camponotini, the species that lives on wood is like mud, rain, and time, the carpenter's enemy. Yes, but I would love to devour the house I live in until it is a permanent part of me. I would love to shape as Paruntachan, the master sculptor, carpenter, and architect of India is said to have shaped a beautiful tree into the coffin in which I am to be buried. I know whatever we place in a coffin, the coffin remains empty. I know nothing buried is buried. 
I don't know why God keeps blessing me. I don't know why God keeps blessing me. All right. <clears throat> uh, two more, two more. Um, blind contour drawing, I should say, uh, has something to do with this poem. Um, I guess I think I'm just going to say that. Uh, yeah. How to draw perfect circles. I can imitate the spheres of her body, the head, the nipples, the mouth, how the chin, the model rests at the bend of her elbow, bends, but nothing tells me how to make her pupils spiral from her gaze. Everything that I sees enters a circle. The world is connected to a circle. Breath spools from the nostrils, and any love to be open becomes an O. The shape inside the circle is a circle. The egg fallen outside the nest, the serpent circles, rests in the serpent's gaze the way my gaze rests on the model. In a blind contour drawing, the eye tracks the subject without observing what the hand is doing. Everything is connected by a line curling and canceling itself like the shape of a snake swallowing its own decadent tail, or a mind that means to destroy itself, a man circling a railway underpass before attacking a policeman. To draw the model's nipples, I have to let myself be carried away. I love all the parts of the body. There are as many curves as there are jewels of matrimony, as many worlds as there are teeth in the mouth of the future. The mute pearls a bride wears to her wedding, the sleeping ovaries like the heads of riders bunched in a tunnel. The doors of the subway car imitate an O opening and closing. In the blood, the O spirals its helix of defects, genetic shadows. But there are no instructions for identifying loved ones who go crazy. When one morning a black man stabs a black transit cop in the face and the cop, bleeding from his eye, kills the assailant, no one traveling to the subway sees it quickly enough to make a camera phone eyewitness. The scene must be carried on the tongue. It must be carried on the news into the future where it will distract the eyes working lines into paper. This is what blind contour drawing conjures in me. At the center of God looms an O. The devil believes justice is shaped like a zero, a militant helmet or war drum, a fist or gun barrel, a barrel of ruined eggs or skulls, to lift anything from a field, the lifter bends like an O. The weight of the body lowered into a hole can make anyone say O. The onlookers, the mother, the brothers and sisters, omen begins with an O. When I looked into my past, I saw the boy I had not seen in years do a standing backflip so daring the onlookers called him crazy. I did not see a moon white as an onion, but I saw a paper plate upon which the boy held a plastic knife and sopping meat. An assailant 
is a man with history. His mother struggles to cut an onion, preparing a meal to be served after the funeral. The onion is the best symbol of the O. Sliced of volatile gas stings the slicer's eyes like a punishment, clouding them until they see what someone trapped underneath a lid of water sees. A soft-edged world, a blur of blooms holding a coffin afloat. The onion is pungent. Its scent infects the air with sadness. All the pallbearers smell it. The mourners watch each other. They watch the pastor's ambivalence. They wait for the doors to open. They wait for the appearance of the wounded, one-eyed victim and his advocates, strangers who do not consider the assailant's funeral appeasement. Before that day, the officer had never fired his gun in the line of duty. He was chatting with the cab driver beneath the tracks when my cousin circled him holding a knife. The wound caused no brain damage, though his eyeball was severed. I'm not sure how a man with no eye weeps. In the Odyssey, pink, eye, pink water descends the Cyclops' cratered face after Odysseus drives a burning log into it. Anyone could do it. Anyone could begin the day with his eyes and end it blind or deceased. Anyone could lose his mind or his vision. When I go crazy, I am afraid I will walk the streets naked. I am afraid I will shout every fucked up thing that troubles or enchants me. I will try to murder or make love to everybody before the policeman handcuff or murder me. Though the bullet exits a perfect hole, it does not leave perfect holes in the body. A wound is a cell and portal. Without it, the blood runs with no outlet. It is possible to draw handcuffs using loops shaped like the symbol for infinity from the Latin infinitus, meaning unboundness. The way you get to anything is context. In a blind contour drawing, it is not possible to give your subject a disconnected gaze. Separated from the hand, the eye begins its own journey. It could have been the same for the Cyclops a giant whose gouged socket was so large, a whole onion could fit into it. Odysseus might have rolled the eyeball among the cannons on his warship or buried it at sea. Separated from the body, the eye begins its own journey. The world comes full circle. The hours, the harvest, the cycle of the service berry, whose appearance along the roads of Appalachia used to signify the earth was thawed enough to bury those who died in winter. When the part of the body that holds the soul is finally decomposed, it becomes a circle, a whole that holds everything, parts of the body no one can see. I watched the model pull a button loose on her jeans and step out of them as one might out of a hole in the blue valley, a sea. I found myself in the dark. I found myself at her body like a delicate shell or soft pill, like this curved thumb of mine against her mouth. One must look without looking to make the perfect circle. The line, the mind must be a blind, continuous liquid until the drawing is complete. All right, y'all, I think I'm gonna stop there. Thank you.
thank you, Terrence, and thank you, Kwame, and thank you to the AWP and to Blue Flower Arts for a uh, beautiful evening. I'm trying to give uh, myself a little space between uh, Terrence and uh, these poems. Beautiful reading, Terrence, really moving. Um, I'm going to start with uh, a poem I wrote um, quite a few years back. It actually has, uh, also has Miles Davis in it, so I thought we could start there. At the cabaret now, <clears throat> excuse me, is there water here? Yes. I'm sorry, my voice is a little raw, so... I'm going to do my best here. <clears throat> the Americans are lonely. They don't know what happened. They're still up and there's all this time yet to kill. The musicians are still being paid so they keep on. The sacks pants up the ladder, up. They want to be happy. They want to just let the notes come on the mortal wounds it's all been paid for. So what the hell, each breath going up, up. Them thinking, of course, will he make it? How far can he go? Skill the prince of the kingdom, there at his table now. Is there some other master also there at a back table, a regular, one we can't make out but whom the head waiter knows, the one who never applauds? So that it's not about the ending, you see, or where to go from here. It's about the breath and how it reaches the trumpeter's hands. How the hands come so close to touching the breath. And how the gold thing gleaming is there in between. The only avenue, the long way, captivity. Like this thing now, slow, extending the metaphor to make a place. Pledge allegiance, by which is meant, see here what a variety tonight, what a good crowd. Some of them saying yes, yes. Some others, no. Don't they sound good together? And all around this, space and seed spores and the green continuance. And all along the musicians still getting paid, so let them. And all around that, the motionlessness, don't think about it though, because you can't. And then the mother who stayed at home, of course, because her body, farewell, farewell. This is the story of a small, strict obedience, human blood, 
and how it rivered into all its bloods. Small stream, really, in the midst of the other ones. In it, children laughing and laughing, which is the sound of ripening, which the musicians can't play, but that is another tale. Someone invited them in, humanity, and they came in. They said they knew, and then they knew. They made this bank called justice, and then this other one called not. They swam in the river, although sometimes it was notes. And some notes are true, even now, yes. They knew each other. Then winter came, which was a curtain, and then spring, which was when they realized it was a curtain. Which leads us to this, the showstopper, summer, the Americans. I wish I could tell you the story. So-and-so holding his glass up, the table around him jittery, and how then she came along gliding between the tables, whispering, it exists, enough to drive them all mad, of course, whispering sharp as salt, whispering straw on fire looking at you. The Americans whispering, it cannot be, stay where you are. And the one in the back, no one knows, starting up the applause, alone, a flat sound like flesh beating flesh, but only like it. Tell me, why did we live, Lord? Blood in a wind, why were we meant to live? I'm going to read another poem from a book uh, titled Swarm with the word, uh, from a series titled Underneath. This is Underneath 13. And then I'll be reading poems from a, my most recent book, Place. I felt that these two would serve as an introduction. These have um, silences between the words and lines, and I'll read those as well. Obviously, we read the silences. Needed explanation. Because of the mystic nature of the theory and our reliance on collective belief, I could not visualize the end. The tools that paved the way broke. The body, the foundation, the exact copy of the real. Our surfaces were covered. Our surfaces are all covered. Actual hands appear, but then there is waiting. In the cave, we were deeply impressed, as in addicted to results. Oh, and dedication, training, the idea of loss of life. In our work, we call this emotion. How a poem 
enters into the world. There is nothing wrong with the instrument. As here, I would raise my voice, but the human being and the world cannot be equated. Aside from the question of whether or not we are alone and other approaches to nothingness, the term subject, the term only, also opinion and annihilation, the body's minutest sensation of time. The world, it is true, has not yet been destroyed. Intensification, void. We are amazed. Uselessness is the last form love takes. So liquid, the foregone conclusion. Here we are, the foregone conclusion. So many messages transmitted, they will never acquire meaning. Do you remember my love, my archive? Touch me here. Give birth to a single idea. Touch where it does not lead to war. Show me exact spot. Climb the stairs. Lie on the bed. Have faith. Nerves wearing only moonlight, lie down. Lie still, patrol your cage. Be a phenomenon at the bottom, below the word. Intention, lick past it. Rip years. Find the burning matter. Love allows it, I think. Push past the freedom, smoke. Push past intelligence, smoke. Whelm, sprawl, favorite city, God's tiny voices. Hand over mouth, let light arrive. Let the past strike us and go. Drift, undo. If it please the dawn, lean down, say, hurt, undo. In your mouth, be pleased. Where does it say? Where does it say? This is the mother tongue. There is in my mouth a ladder. Climb down, presence of world impassable gap, pass. I am beside myself. You are inside me as history. We exist. Meet me. And I will read four poems from plays. The bird that begins it. 
in the world famous night, which is already flinging away bits of dark, but not quite yet, there opens a sound like a rattle. Then a slicing in which even the blade is audible. And then again, even though trailing the night melt, suddenly again the rattle. In the return, in the night of the return of day, of next on time, of shape, name, field with history flapping all over it, invisible flags or wings or winds, victory being exactly what it says the end of night. It is not right to enter time, it mutters as its tatters come loose in the return. I think I am in this body. I really only think it. This body lying here is only my thought. The flat sense solution to the sensation question of who is it that is listening? Who is it that is still... I think I am in this body. I really only think it. This body lying here is only my thought. The flat solution to the sensation question of who is it that is listening? Who is it that is wanting still to speak to you out of the vast network of blooded things, a huge breath-held candle lit, whistling, planet-wide, still blood-flowing, howling, silent, sentence-driven, last bridge pulled up behind city of the human, the expense column of place, in place, humming. To have a body, a borderline of ethics and reason. Here comes the first light in leaf-shaped coins. They are still being flung at our feet. We could be Judas, no problem. Could be the wishing well, right here in my open mouth. The light can toss its wish right down this spinal cord, can tumble in and buy a wakened self. What is the job today, my being asks of light? Please tell me my job. It cannot be this headless, incessant crossing of threshold. It cannot be more purchasing of more good. It cannot be more sleeplessness, the necklaces of minutes being tossed over and over my shoulders. The snake goes further into the grass as first light hits. The clay in the soil gleams where dew withdraws. Something we don't want any more of flourishes as never before. I feel the gravity as I sit up like a leaf growing from the stalk of the unknown, still lying there behind me where my sleep just was. Daylight crackles on the sill. Preparation of day everywhere underfoot. Across the sill, the hero unfolding in new light, the girl who would not bear the god a son, 
the mother who ate her own grown flesh, the God who in exchange for time gave as many of his children as need be to the abyss. It is day. The human does not fit in it. Employment. Listen, the voice is American. It would reach you. It has wiring in its swan's neck where it is always turning round to see behind itself as it has no past to speak of except some nocturnal journals written in woods where the fight has just taken place or is about to take place for place. The pupils have firelight in them where the man, a surveyor or tracker, still has no idea what is coming. The wall-to-wall -wall cars on the 405 for the ride home from the cubicle or the corner office, how big the difference. Or the waiting all day in line till your number is called, it will be called, which means exactly nothing, as no one will say to you, as was promised by all eternity, ah, son, do you know where you came from? Tell me, tell me your story as you have come to this station. No, they did away with the stations and the jobs and the way of life and your number, how you hold it, its promise on its paper. If numbers could breathe, each one of these would be an exhalation, the last breath of something, and then there you have it, stilled, the exactness, the number, your number. That is why they can use it, because it was living and now is stilled. The transition from one state to the other, they give you receive provides its shape. A number is always hovering over something beneath it. It is invisible, but you can feel it. To make a sum, you summon a crowd. A large number is a form of mob. The larger the number, the more terrifying. They are getting very large now. The thing to do right away is to start counting, to say it is my turn, mine to step into the stream of blood for the interview, to say I can do it, to say I am not one, and then say two, three, four, and feel the blood take you in from above, a legion, single file heading out in formation across a desert that will not count. Treadmill. The road keeps accepting us. It wants us to learn nowhere, its shiny emptiness, its smile of wide days, 
so swollen with void. It really means it. This is not a vacation. It wants us to let our sculled-in minds, its channel and runnels, its slimy, stalked circuits connecting wildly. It, the road, wants us right now to cast it, the mind, from its encasement forward, to race up ahead and get a feel for what it is, this always receding, this place in which you were to deposit your question, the destination. The mind is meant to want this, isn't it? Meant to rage, to handle it, to turn it round, to feel all its facets, its fine accidents, death by water, death by wearing out, death by surprise, death by marriage, death by having rummaged into the past, into the distant past, death by ice core and prediction. The entrails are lying on a thousand years of tabletops. Have you not looked into them enough, says the grayish road, hissing, or maybe that is my mind. I entered the poem here on line 28 at 6.44 p.m. I had been trying to stay outside. I had not wanted to put my feet here too, but the wind came up, a little Achilles wind. The city took its time off from dying to whisper into my ear, we need you. The complaint which we will nail once again to the door must be signed by everyone. Everyone needs to be walking together. Everyone must feel the dust underfoot. Death by drought, death by starvation, death by neglect, Death by no cause of death, by unfolding, oh, the rose garden, dew still on it, the dry fields in each drop held up by the petal. Look, you can see the cracks in the soil reflected right here, puritanical dried fields, sincerity at utmost in the fissured field. The screen is empty, is full of cracked soil, the soil death by transcendent truth, death by banking practice, by blueprint and mutually assured destruction, death by deterrent, detergent, derangement, defamation, deregulation, the end of the line, where the tracks just stop and who is that coming from the woodshed to greet you? The end is always cheerful, says the day hurrying alongside as you splice through it, as you feel your astonishing aloneness grow funnily winged. Who are you going to be someday? Who are you going to be when all this clay flowing through you has finally become form and you catch a glimpse of yourself at daybreak there in the shiny broken-faced surface who was awaiting you all day that you hurried so what was it you were told to accomplish death rimless stare oh hasn't enough time passed by now can the moving walkway be shut down for the night but no it is told it is told the, uni the universe in your mind as it expands and it is October once again as it must be the new brightness and again gold lays down on them the tight rolls of hay the long rows the cut fields which winter eyes hidden as it is at the core of everything 
and the crows sharpen their blade calls on the morning, and the frost and the frost blooms its parallel world, and the road seems to want to be spooled into your hands, into your mind, fine yarn you would ravel back to its place of origin. Is it true some people are not coming along with us? Is it really true there is a road not taken? And it is October once again, as it must be. The new brightness, the harvest, the dance, and your dance partner, be prudent. It really knows the steps. I guess real time means I spilled a glass of water right in the moment Kwame wanted me to. So I step into the palm, spill a glass of water. That's, that's your answer, real time. The final poem, a dialogue of the imagination's fear. A little argument with the imagination of which there has been a great deal of in these chambers over these past few days. All around in houses near us, the layoffs, the windows shine back sky. It is a wonder we can use the word free and have it mean anything at all to us. We stand still, let the cold wind wrap round, go into hair in between fingers. The for sale signs are bent and ripple in wind. One had fallen last fall and snowmelt is re-revealing it again. Rattle in ground wind, siding weakening on everything. Spring, underneath, the bulbs want to clear the sill of dark and find the sun. I can see now, I can see them now under there, in there, soggy with melt and loam which is loosening as their skins rot to let the whitest tendrils out. Out they go, snaking everywhere, till the leaves are blurring. They fur out. They exist. Another year's loan to time, and the bud will form in the sleeve of the silky leaf. And they will quietly, among the slow-working pigeons, and where a dog is leaping in almost complete invisibility, make slim heads thicken. I am ill, you know, says the man walking by, his dog pulling him. So much joy and nothing will make it more or less. The flower as alive as it is dead, above which the girl with earphones walking, humming, no one has warned her yet, she is free. But why, says the imagination, have you sent me down here? 
down among the roots as they finally take hold. It is hard. They wrench. The loam is not easy to open. I cannot say it, but the smell is hope meeting terrifying regret. I would say, do not open again. Do not go up. Stay under here. There is no epoch. We are in something, but it is not the world. Why try to make us feel at home down here? Take away the poem. Take away this desire that has you entering this waste, dark space. There are not even pockets of time here. There are no mysteries. There is no laughter, and nothing ever dies. The foreclosure you are standing beside, look to it. There is a woman crying on the second floor as she does not understand what it will be like to not have a home now and how to explain to the children at 3.35 when the bus drops them off, the root is breaking its face open and shoving up to escape towards sun. Nothing can stop it, though right now the repo men have not yet come. The school bus is only just getting loaded up. The children pooling, squealing, some stare out the window. Kiss the soil as you pass by. It is coming up to kiss you. Bend down to me. You have placed me here. Look to me on all fours. Drink of the puddle. Look hard at the sky in there. It is not sky. It is not there. The flame of sun, which will come out just now for a blinding minute into your eyes, is saving nothing. No one. Take your communion. Your blood is full of barren fields. They are the future in you. You should learn to feel and love. There will be no more. No more. Not enough to go around. No more around. No more. Love that. Thank you. Okay. So we know the time. I, for, and those who need to take off can take off. But I'm just going to ask you to indulge us for just 10 minutes. Um, and I'll have a quick, we'll have a conversation. The conversation won't feel rushed because I'm only going to ask one question. <laughs> <laughs> and they will take their time and answer it. So, um, but first of all, let's thank Jerry Graham and Terence Hayes for that amazing reading. <laughs> Woo -hoo! And thank you, those who are staying around for the conversation or for what, what we'll do with it. Um, so I had a bunch of questions, and they're all in here. Um, and they were questions that sort of imagined what kinds of things you would like to hear answers to, and then some that I'm desperately curious about. So now I have to choose, and I, I will look after myself. Um, <laughs> So you're just eavesdropping. But, but there's a, there's a, I, I was in Scotland um, about six months ago at the Stanza um, Poetry Festival, and I visited um, Robert Burns. There's a wonderful museum um, for Robert Burns. Um, and I, I, there was a little plaque 
sort of they've been talking about the funeral of Robert Burns. Um, and there's a little scenario in there, sort of an anecdote, and who knows whether it's true or not, but it tells of a boy, uh, a nine-year-old boy at the funeral, um, and it's a massive funeral. People have come from all over the place. And he's looking up at his da, and he says to his father, um, who will be our poet now? Um, and so I, I said, well, let's say it was a little girl, and that will make it interesting too. And she says, who will be our poet now? And the question I have for you, which, and, you know, for me, this seemed like a very interesting idea. Um, and the, the most interesting part of that idea was the word our, the, the idea of the our. Um, so my question to you is, does this mean anything to you? In other words, this idea of, of, a, of a child standing there and making this question, asking this question on the passing of a great poet or a poet that is, is, is loved. And so that's one part of the question. And the second part of the question is, for you, does there exist an hour? Is there, do, do, who would you conceive of? Who would be the hour for, for, for you if that question, no, no, I'm not, I'm not, so, you know, if that question was asked of you um, or of, about you? So, is that clear? Kind of? It's clear if I don't have to answer it first. <laughs> well, there's it's only two choices can, here. Jory uh, told me, should I Jory. answer that first? You answer. answer. Mm -hmm. uh, man, okay. Uh, yeah, the hour thing is interesting. I mean, mm. you know, most of the stuff I talk about just walking around the house is around music. So mm. I would say, who is our Miles Davis? Right. Who is our Michael Jackson? Mm. You know, Prince is still our Prince, so mm. he's still around. Um, but you know, there's a parallel in terms of how we think of other art forms. Who is our great painter mm -hmm. right now? Who mm -hmm. is our Picasso? Mm -hmm. And the difficulty of answering that in a room this size, or even a room with three people in it, sure. is the difficulty of answering that question about poetry yeah. for me. So the question would be like, who is our last hour? Yeah. Uh, Adrian Rich, Lucille Clifton. Allen Ginsberg, you right. know what I mean? You have to, I mean, these are the, the lines that have just passed on yeah. for me, so. So do you see, is there, is there a tribe, I mean, is, if we talked about tribes or, 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 or world, for you, that our, is that our America? Is that our a poetry world? Is that our, um, who, 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 who is that collective that is making that statement? In other words, if, if we said, if we said, we think of Adrian Rich, mm -hmm. and we think of she's she's our. Right. Is the our America, and 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 for you, who who, who might be uh, our is like the, you. I'm looking at you. So the two of us, that's an hour. Yeah. I mean, okay. Everybody else is so sort who is of there uh, in the conversation. Yeah. Everybody else is sort of theoretical. You know, when right. I think about just writing poems, I always say it's like me and my shadow, hmm. and I'm trying to sort of address whatever that thing laid out behind me is. Right. Getting at because everybody else is just theory. I mean, there's a bunch of people, but the people in our are they're both sort of difficult yeah. concepts for me. I mean, for for a writer, for someone trying to make a thing, I know that we exist and there is nationhood and there are tribes and there are neighborhoods. Yeah. So I know that that exists. But in the moment of just trying to like conjure something very specific, I find that thinking. I mean, you know, the other question behind that is also even thinking in terms of legacy or right importance and this is just me you know I always think the last poem is the last poem I can do and I always think that you know nobody's gonna read it I was thinking did anybody hear I don't think anybody heard me what did I say I don't know what yeah, I said yeah, you know yeah, yeah, once yeah. I sit down so it's a constant sort of 
I guess that's a form of negative capability, but a, a, a constant sort of questioning that is very particular. And when it's not particular, it's intimate. And so it gets down to like, who am I looking at? Right. Who can I moment. touch, really? Yeah. But everybody else is just yeah. theoretical for me. What about you, Jerry? How do you make sense of this? Well, as I was thinking about your question, um, I actually believe that we're much more alike than not, mm. um, that uh, we, we all are born and we all have um, very simple relationship to mortality, just mm -hmm. a great deal of uh, unknowing and uh, unavoidability. Yeah. Um, these are some of the great questions that have not been solved by any poets mm. and continue to be the spine uh, of, uh, of uh, the poetic enterprise. Mm. We have, in addition, um, we are more of a community than we've ever been and more deeply in need of becoming a community because we are uh, you know, in a threat that doesn't really respect nation states, doesn't have much to do with them, it doesn't respect religions, it doesn't respect you know, any kind of ethnic difference. It's simply uh, we are in a relationship with this planet which is not sustainable mm. and we are at great risk. Um, I think that you know, there's a clear, as any environmentalist uh, scientist would tell you, there's a clear role for artists to play and attempting to um, awaken a sense not only of accountability, but, and I believe art does that and because each individual poet attempts that on the page. I also think it has to do with trying to attempt to, uh, to awaken a sense of deep futurity, which is a much longer subject. Mm -hmm. But um, awakening a sense of deep futurity depends entirely on a capacity to awaken a sense of the past. And uh, we live in a very presentist moment. We live in a moment which is shutting down its, uh, as we all know, more than ever. Um, you know, when Burns lived 200 years ago, you know, he was in a very specific relationship between the rural, the folk, and the urban, mm -hmm. and, um, which was being created by people like himself. And I think that there might be poets willing to work today to, um, most poets, I think, that, I, that I'm interested in are working to find new reintegrations and new ways of posing questions. What, you know, the way I would put it is to, you know, a younger writer thinking about uh, who, who to read mm. and how to proceed, I would always say the same thing that I used to tell myself, be, be careful what you sit down to, when you sit down to the blank page, be careful what you ask for. Mm. If you ask for, you know, if your question that you ask if the, if the, the answer is, if what you're asking for is an answer to the question of identity, as in, am I a poet? You will get up from the blank page with a poem. Um, and uh, that's all. Mm. Uh, if you sit down to the blank page with the question that, say, is Tolstoy's question, like, what are we to do? You might not get up from the blank page with a poem, but you will be undertaking the activity that poetry is capable of undertaking on behalf of a community. And that community is really, you know, the rest of the mortal selves, you know, happen to be alive at that given moment on the planet, whether they know you're working or not. Right. Listening yeah. to Adonis last night, I wasn't really thinking that he was a Syrian poet. I could just listen to him telling me about what is it like to live in the moment? What is it like to have memory? And what is it like to have to imagine the future? And how do you survive those three conditions? And uh, so I just feel um, 
I feel very little uh, despair. I feel like we live in an extraordinary moment for poetry, and you know, we will never know who the poet of our moment is until, uh, as Mark Strand used to say, we all get out of the way of our poems. <laughs> yes, right. We pass on. All right. Can I do one more question? Yeah. Okay. Good. Let me do this one now. So, both of you are people who are clearly involved in other art forms, right? You, you know, I know Terence, you're, you're, you paint and um, you play piano, you're very interested in jazz and so on. And Joey, you've been involved in filmmaking um, and, and drawing, um, I learned today. Um, and so you're both sort of engaged in the image, the physical image, the kind of tangible physical image, um, as well as the image on the page, the poem. Um, so, so do these, do these areas, these other sort of gifts and, and, and involvements in art, do they, do they engage with each other? Do they affect? And I'm really interested in whether those other areas affect your poetry and how, how, how that happens. Because it does seem to me that when you think of the image as a very physical entity, um, it, it, it sharpens our understanding of what image means in, in the poem. So how, how do these other interests of yours and fascinations in art affect your own work and, and, and how you write? Do you want to make me go first again? <laughs> um, I, the response of how things relate is that, you know, when my uh, kids get out of the car in the morning, my typical request is that they make something. Sometimes trouble is good to make <laughs> to, you know, in addition. So when I just think about like my working practice, yeah. I mean, I, I get paid more to make poems than I do to make paintings. Mm. So that's why I talk mostly about poems. And that's not even a comment of which is better. It's just a comment of really I'm just content to be making something. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that's rhetoric. Sometimes that's argument. So that's the sort of relationship between those things. But in terms of image, I mean, if I, again, I think of image as a very sort of, as tangible a thing I can get to in terms of like a, you know, a figure of sound right. or uh, something like concrete. So I, I gravitate, as I think many, many poets do, towards the notion that the image is the thing that I can hold on to mm. in the poem. Um, so those are maybe two different answers. I mean, the, the first answer is that, like I will make whatever I can. Right. And so, cause you know, like you say the piano and I think, yeah, I do try to play the piano, but right. I would never say, play for anybody, do you know what I mean? Right. So, and that's fine, you know, sometimes I'll try to record it, but mostly the idea of just making it is not good for the people I live with, but for me, it's like, <laughs> well, you know, yeah. I'm just making something, do you know yeah. what I mean? And so yeah. that gesture is really the gesture that I So you pursue. began by saying you tell your kids, make something today. Right. It's interesting, though. Yeah. Trouble. Well, trouble, I yeah, know, yeah, but do they yeah. bring stuff, too? Do they sometimes bring other things than trouble? Oh, sure, sure, yeah. yeah. But it's, I mean, I say it to my students sometimes, too. Yeah. It's just like the... The idea of like locating it in one form of expression, yeah. which would be language or or a music, yeah. to me is not fully a reflection of like our sort of capacity to imagine sure, to I sort of it. play with Jory's last poem. Like if you sort of think of the imagination is not confined by style or even genre or category, then what you ask is like, hey, you know, it doesn't matter if you can't convert it to product or as you know, as I say, like play the piano, it doesn't matter if you don't always record it or mm -hmm. share it, but there's something that happens. I think about that with like a piano player like Keith Jarrett, you mm -hmm. know, uh, a sense of someone who's like, you know, he would be doing that if we weren't in the room, really. It's right. all the humming and grunting, right, you know. Right, so right. that is sort of the, the kind of intimacy that I go for. And I feel like on the other side of that intimacy is a thing that 
is worth sharing or worth mm. sort of giving to people. But the first gesture is just like to make a gesture, I think, whatever genre or whatever, whatever category it is. That's what I, I try to do. Yeah. Yeah. How about you, Joe? Well, by now I can't remember the question. Okay, let me let no, me no, remind no, you. No, 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 no. If I misremember it, I can say whatever I want. It's great. <laughs> That's how she writes her poems, you know. Uh, I, uh, I, first of all, um, I did begin. Um, uh, my first creative work was in film, and it was very important to me. You know, as a teenager, to be working, I did work. You know, with with a certain kind of filmmaker, with Antonioni, and it did affect a certain, uh, it strongly affected my sense of what a work of art was for, what the sense of audience is, um, what how time is deployed. Um, it's hard to avoid. You know, if you've if you've worked with the person who made La Ventura, to ever again, you know, think that time can't dilate and. Mm -hmm. and, and uh, contract and do things that, you know, long before you study phenomenology or read Proust, you've got Antonioni in your life. It was a very marked experience for me. Um, and then I did study filmmaking and I learned a great deal from studying um, uh, montage, uh, uh, film editing. Um, enormous, enormous amounts uh, of information come from deciding, especially if you're still working in an era where you use a moviola and you actually have to hold the film up and cut it and look at it and count out the 16 frames that will be invisible and figure out what image goes next to what image. That has definitely affected the way I put images together on the page. In addition, I had to learn, um, and there's a great difference between montage and collage, which is a really interesting subject for another time. But, um, I, you know, the montage for me was a continuum with looking at the Giotto fresco cycles in Assisi or in the Scriveni chapel and seeing, you know, outside of the religious um, narrative, looking at the ways in which Giotto would strike the hills down on a diagonal this way and pick them up that way or put them in. You can just see the way in which a work, you know, you don't need the Potemkin step sequence to help you understand sort of, you know, Giotto will do it as well to make you understand how things can go together um, with the least amount of, uh, of explanation mm. possible and that the human mind will grasp it and that there's something enormously mysterious in the way the human mind, when allowed to do that, will come up with a sensation of their own making. Mm. Um, and then finally, I did have to work, um, do a great deal of work when I was working in film school on uh, creating silence. There was a silence bank that I was part of creating. And, you know, you, to, you know room tone is a very interesting silence. And there are hundreds of kinds of room tone. And then, you know, you work up, you know, if you start working with, you realize that you put, an, um, um, you put nothing on the track and it's not silence. So then you realize that silence is a very active component. So by the time I got to Dickinson's telling me, I know that he exists somewhere in silence, I had a very strong uh, relationship to the ways in which silence was one of the instruments that I was using. And I really couldn't have arrived at that without having to edit silence mm. in film. And then finally, as to the drawing part, it's just that when I was a young poet, I used to have this crazy sense of obligation that I wasn't sure that I could ever see something fully enough to write it, to have the privilege of trying to transmit it into words. So I used to draw almost every object that went into the poem in the first few books. So, you know, I still have drawings of like, it's a poem called about three squashes in my first book, and I have the drawing of these three squashes. 
made myself crazy trying to see, you know, I think a bishop saying, you know, about looking and looking one's infant sight away. And that, that sense that there was sight and insight and that sight can lead you to insight. Mm -hmm. It's not, you know, it's not something that comes exclusively from the eye. It has to do with the eye transiting through everything the eye can give you or the senses can give you if you're going through the tactile or the olfactory. Um, into the point where you see with what you would think of as a larger instrument than your own senses, but only your own senses can lead, it, mm. lead you there. Mm. Okay, so we're going to, we, I'm going to ask one sort of ending question, and, um, and it's, a, it's a basic question, I think. Um, and and it, it is simply the idea, what is, what is home? What is, when you think home, as, 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 um, whatever home means. If I said, what is home for you? What are the things that sort of jump at you? What are the images and what locates the idea of home for you? Because I, when I think of it for me, it's very conflicted and I'm just curious about what that means for, for each of you. Maybe Joy can start now first because... I was thinking of yeah. the, that you were channeling Bishop again. You said, we have stayed at home <laughs> and thought of here, wherever that may be. That's right. Um, well, I mean, I, I feel like the American language is the, is the one trustworthy home mm. I have. But I, it's my third language. I did grow up in a first language was Italian and French almost simultaneously. I read mostly poets in those languages and I first wrote poems in French. So um, by the time I, I'd been, by the, I didn't realize that I was, I actually only transited fully into English at the end of my second book into American English. Oh. When I woke up one morning and realized that I uh, had dreamt in English the night before and hadn't realized I'd been dreaming in uh, French for, for all those years wow. while living still already in the US. So language is a home and the American English language is one of the most extraordinary instruments um, that we have. I mean, there's a reason that we have such an enormous literature all over the globe in this an unbelievable instrument. So that would be, and the second place for me, I would have to say, um, is just the, 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 the physical sense of the planet. I, I'm just, uh, mm. maybe it's because I'm a Taurus, you know? <laughs> uh, I'm just a spring child, but I'm just incredibly connected to, if you put me next to a tree, I, I mean, you know, first of all, I've been studying what trees are, and they're the most terrifying to stand next to. But, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the sense of that. I don't have a strong sense of the nation state because of this sort of um, transition between languages, mm. which is sort of normal to me in any given day, and also because my work exists in so many other languages now, I'm never sure, you know, what, how, where, it's, where its home is. So, you know, my home is in my work. All right. Uh, see, I had just enough time to say thanks, Kwame. <laughs> thanks for... Uh, asking the questions and thank y'all for staying. It's such yeah. an honor to read with Jory and AWP is always a good place to read. Uh, but I was thinking of just like the road. That was the first thing I thought. Mm. I find the place between homes to be the most reflective of sort of who I am. Yeah. So, you know, like when I think about going to visit relatives in Cincinnati, like I love that drive. Even mm. though it's through Ohio, there's not yeah. that much to see, <laughs> you know, but then, I get there and it's cool, but then of course I'm thinking about that drive back. What music am I going to play? That's cool. So it's like I as like soon that. as I'm there, I'm yeah. thinking about returning to wherever. So that's the first thing that comes to mind: yeah. a sense of uh, 
movement and a sense of destination that's reflective of the road. Mm -hmm. And we could talk about the road and the car as reflective of whatever mm -hmm. kind of, mm -hmm. it's problems with oil, but also it's sort of extension of, you know, pioneering and frontier. There's all kinds of ways that we can play with what the car yeah. means for us as a culture. But the road is very connected to that. Yeah. So beyond that, I mean, I, I think, I mean, I know, again, South Carolina is my home, mm. but I'm mostly interested in driving there and then driving back <laughs> than being there. And yeah. so that's, that would yeah. be my, my short answer. Yeah. That's I would great. have to say that when I called him once, he said, um, I said, have I caught you at a bad time? He said, no, I'm on the road. Um, it's a long story. <laughs> <laughs> now I get it. Yeah. Well, folks, thank you all for staying thank in. And thanks, George, and Terrence. Fantastic. Thank nice you. to meet you. Thank you so much. That was much. great. Thank you. Fantastic. Thank you. That was just beautiful. Thank you for tuning in to the AWP podcast series. For other podcasts, please visit our website at www.awpwriter.org.